In the consult, we discuss cases that are violent and sexually violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Consult. I'm Julia Cowley, retired FBI agent and profiler and former special agent forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. I'm on my own for the next two weeks, so I thought I'd take this opportunity to tell you about a case I profiled shortly after I was assigned to the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit. The case involves the murders of two best friends, Taylor Pascal Placker, who was 13 years old, and Skyla Whitaker, who was 11. Taylor and Skyla were murdered on June 8, 2008. It was a beautiful Sunday afternoon, and they had gone for a walk along a dirt road in rural Walika, Oklahoma, when they were shot multiple times with two different guns. It was one of the largest investigations ever conducted by the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. I heard about this case when it first happened because it made national news. I think like anyone else who heard about the case, I wondered what kind of person can do such a horrible thing. I didn't know at the time, but I would be the person to figure that out. At the time of the murders, I was still assigned to the Boston office, and I was working public corruption. I had followed the Walika case closely, searching the news, always hoping to find out if the killer had been caught. By 2010, I had been selected for assignment to the BAU, and one morning I was in my office and once again curious about the status of the investigation, so I searched the internet for any updates. I found an article in which the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation stated they planned to request assistance from the FBI's BAU. So I hustled down to the supervisor's office and I asked him if I could have the case. He agreed and he assigned it to me, and that's how I got involved in this investigation. Walika is a town in Okfuskey County with a population of barely a thousand. It is located approximately 69 miles south of Tulsa and 89 miles west of Oklahoma City. I had never been to Oklahoma before, but my grandmother grew up in Muskogee just over an hour from Walika, and my grandmother's sister ran a tea room in Muskogee for years and showcased the works of many Native American artists. I felt a connection to this area of Oklahoma and to these girls. I also grew up in a small town and lived on a dirt road. I would go for walks all the time, and I thought it was the safest place in the world. Taylor and Skyla were best of friends. The school year had just finished up, so Skyla's mother dropped her off at Taylor's house on that Friday evening, June 6, 2008, so the girls could enjoy the weekend together. On Sunday, at around 4.30 in the afternoon, Taylor asked her grandmother, Vicki, if she and Skyla could go for a walk. 
Taylor usually went for a walk every day to explore the area around a bridge. The bridge was called Bad Creek Bridge, and it was approximately a half a mile north of the Placker residence. Taylor liked to walk there often. She'd capture turtles, write her name on their backs, and then let them go. Taylor and Skyla had also walked to Bad Creek Bridge the day before, on Saturday, June 7th, leaving the house at approximately the same time as they did on that Sunday. Shortly after leaving for their walk, Skyla's mother called Vicky and told her she was on her way to pick up Skyla. Vicky tried to call Taylor's cell phone to tell her to come home, but Taylor didn't answer. So Taylor's grandfather, Peter, walked up the road towards the bridge to find the girls. He found them shot to death on the side of the road. He started screaming back to Vicky, who called 911. It was 5.19 p.m. when the 911 call was received. The crime scene was located almost two-tenths of a mile north of the Placker's driveway on the west side of the road, which ran north and south. Taylor was found on her back in a ditch that ran alongside the road. Her legs were separated and bent at the knees. Her torso was perpendicular to the road, and she was lying crossways in a ditch with her head turned to the right. Her feet were pointed toward the east. Both of her arms were extended straight out from her body and bent at the elbows. She was wearing shorts, a t-shirt, and slip-on shoes. There were bullet wounds visible on the left side of her chin, above her upper lip, the cheek area of the right side of her face, and the third knuckle of her right hand. Blood was visible on Taylor's nose, mouth, chin, and neck, and blood spatter was located on the inside of her right arm. Blood had pooled under her right hand, and her shirt was saturated with blood. Blood was also visible on the left groin area of Taylor's shorts, and when crime scene investigators lifted the leg of the shorts, they noted a bullet wound in Taylor's left groin. However, there was no corresponding hole in her shorts. Skyla was farther away from the side of the road, approximately four feet west of Taylor, on an inclined grassy area. She was on her back, contorted a bit, with her head facing southwest, and turned to the left. Her right foot was facing north in the direction of the bridge. Her left leg was crossed under her right leg. Her left arm across her chest and her right arm was at her side. She was wearing shorts, a t-shirt, and flip-flop sandals. Bullet holes were in the right and left sides of her shirt and the inside right sleeve of her shirt. Blood stains were visible under her right armpit area and right side of her shirt, as well as the midsection of her shirt. Taylor's autopsy showed five separate gunshot wounds, two on the left side of her face, one on the right side of her face, one in her left groin, and one at her third right knuckle. It was the medical examiner's opinion that the gunshot wounds in the right cheek and right hand could have been inflicted by a single bullet. There was also an abrasion present over Taylor's upper right cheek. Her cause of death was listed as multiple gunshot wounds. Skyla's autopsy showed eight separate gunshot wounds, two to her right arm, one in her left shoulder, one in her left arm, two in her chest, one in the upper region of her abdomen, and one in her right neck. 
The bullet that went into Skyla's neck area penetrated through her throat to the left back part of her temporal bone, one of the bones of the skull. Her cause of death was also listed as multiple gunshot wounds. Five forty caliber shell casings were found at the crime scene and determined to have been fired by the same weapon, most likely a Glock. The two bullets recovered from Taylor's head and the one from Skyla's were 22 long rifle bullets, but no further identification could be made. The remaining bullets were 40 caliber. The laboratory determined the most probable brand of firearm was a Glock. There was no indication that either girl had been sexually assaulted. Complete information about the victim of a violent crime is an important part of the crime analysis process. I always say the more you know about your victim, the more you know about your offender. An individual's personality and lifestyle will affect their chances of becoming a victim of a violent crime and will also determine how they will react when confronted by a violent offender. Their actions may affect the activity of the offender and the eventual outcome of the violent confrontation. In this case, understanding the victimology was key to understanding the offender's motivation. Taylor was a 13-year-old white female. She lived with her grandparents, Peter and Vicki Placker, her biological aunt, and her biological mother. Peter and Vicki raised Taylor since her birth. Taylor's biological father had not been involved in Taylor's life since she was just a few days old. Taylor was aware that Peter and Vicki were her grandparents. However, she and the rest of the family referred to Peter and Vicki as her parents and her biological mom and biological aunt as her sisters. At the time of her death, Taylor had just completed the sixth grade at Graham School in Walika. She was a straight-A student and described by her teachers as very smart, conscientious, sweet, respectful, quiet, and shy. While Taylor was smart and a good student, she had been homeschooled up until she entered the fifth grade and was socially delayed as a result. Taylor's teacher described Taylor's family as being very supportive and interested in her school activities. Taylor was a member of the school cheerleading squad and was well-liked and admired by all her classmates, and she had a lot of friends. In addition to cheerleading, Taylor enjoyed listening to music, playing computer games, and going for walks. She was also a fan of the film High School Musical, which aired on the Disney Channel. Her love of the film was evidenced by the fact that when their bodies were found, both Taylor and Skyla had written all over their torsos with ink, references to the film's actors. Taylor had access to the internet and used it to download music, play games, and to do her homework on the Graham School website. Taylor had a Facebook account, but she never accessed it. She also had a cell phone, and phone records indicated that she only used it to call Vicky and her aunts. There were no unknown incoming or outgoing phone numbers. Although Taylor liked boys, she did not date or have a boyfriend, and there was no indication she was sexually active. There was also no indication that Taylor ever used alcohol or drugs. Skyla was an 11-year-old white female. She lived with her mother, Rose Whitaker, her stepfather, William Whitaker, and her younger sister, Jamie Whitaker. At the time of her death, Skyla had just completed the fifth grade at Graham School in Walika. Her teachers described Skyla's family as very loving and interested in her school activities. Skyla was an average student, but she was very self-confident, outgoing, social, and very well-liked by other students. 
She also had a lot of friends like Taylor, and she was athletic and participated on the cheerleading squad and basketball team at the school. She also loved animals and participated in 4-H. In addition to cheerleading and basketball, Skyla enjoyed outdoor activities, playing video games, and watching movies. She did not have access to the internet at home, only at school or friends' houses. And she did not have her own cell phone, but was allowed to use her parents' phone when she wanted to call her friends. According to her family, Skyla was becoming very interested in boys. However, there was no indication that she was sexually active. There was also no indication that Skyla ever used alcohol or drugs. So based upon all this information known about Taylor and Skyla, both girls would be considered at low risk for becoming victims of a violent crime. With any case analysis, I always try to think of what questions I can help investigators answer. In this case, I felt the following questions were the minimum of what needed to be answered. First and foremost, because there were two guns used, was there more than one offender? But, in order to answer this question, we needed to know what happened at the crime scene. What were the sequence of events, and what was the interaction between the offender, or offenders, and the victims? I also wanted to answer what was the motive. Why, on this day, at this time, on this road, were these two seemingly low-risk, non-threatening, young girls so brutally gunned down? I also thought it was important to know, was the offender from this area? The Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation had released a composite of a stranger that had been seen in the area by various witnesses. So was this the offender a stranger, or was the offender local and living amongst the community? Everyone has their own process. For me, I always start with the crime scene in combination with the autopsy and any laboratory reports. I don't want to be influenced by any of the investigation, and I want to be able to look at it as objectively as possible. Most crime scenes provide the investigator with clues as to what occurred and can provide information about the behavior of the offender and the interaction between a victim and offender. The Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation did a phenomenal job of processing and documenting the crime scene, and the autopsy was very rich in detail. This allowed me to piece together what I believe to be the most probable sequence of events. The offender encountered Taylor and Skyla on the road that day. As there was no indication that Taylor attempted to flee, it appeared the offender shot her first. Using the 40 caliber weapon, the offender shot Taylor in the right cheek with the bullet likely passing through her right hand first as she attempted to defend herself. Since the bullet struck bone, it likely fragmented and a fragment struck Taylor's right cheek, causing an abrasion above the entrance wound. Having witnessed Taylor being shot, Skyla then apparently turned and attempted to run from the offender, 
She was unable to make it more than a few feet when the offender shot her, striking her twice in the back of her right arm and once in the back of her left arm. As Skyla stumbled, the offender continued to shoot, striking her twice in the right side of her chest, once in the upper abdomen, and once in the top of her left shoulder. Once both girls were down, the offender returned his attention to Taylor and, using the forty caliber weapon, shot her in the left groin region. It is possible that the offender displaced Taylor's shorts when he shot her because there was no corresponding bullet hole. Taylor was found with her legs spread and bent at the knees. The bullet trajectory suggested she was shot when her legs were in a straightened position. Therefore, it appeared the offender repositioned Taylor's legs after he shot her in the groin area. Following the shot to Taylor's groin, the offender obtained a 22 caliber weapon. Using the 22, he shot Taylor twice, once in the upper lip and once in the jaw. There was powder stippling surrounding the shot to the jaw, indicating it was closer in range. The offender also used the 22 to shoot Skyla once in the neck. There was an indication that this shot was also closer in range, as there was scattered gunpowder attached. In addition, there was little hemorrhaging of this wound, indicating that it was most likely post-mortem. What I'd like to do now is go over what my observations were regarding the crime scene and my assessment of the sequence of events. I'm sure you can tell at this point, it was my opinion there was only one offender. There was nothing found at the crime scene to suggest that there was more than one offender. If there were multiple offenders, we would expect to see simultaneous actions resulting in better control of the two victims. For example, two offenders would have controlled each of their respective victims, shooting them with their respective weapons, and Skyla would most likely not have been able to turn to flee. Rather, the offender shot Taylor, he briefly lost control of Skyla, and she turned to run. The offender quickly regained control of Skyla by shooting her multiple times. The offender then retrieved a second weapon and shot each victim in their heads. I believed the motive for these murders was some sort of personal cause. This could include anger, revenge, the elimination of some kind of obstacle, or a combination of these. And this was based on the following. Number one, the offender escalated directly to deadly force. There were no signs of a struggle, and the first violent interaction the offender had was to shoot Taylor in the face. The offender's intent was to kill the victims, and this was evidenced by the fact that after shooting both victims multiple times, he retrieved another weapon and shot them at close range in their heads. There was also no known theft. Robbery was not a motive in these homicides. The motive was not sexual assault. There was no evidence of a sexual assault. While these were not sexual murders, meaning that the murders were not motivated by sexual drives or fantasies, that does not mean the offender did not have a sexual interest in one or both victims. However, if the offender wanted to commit a sexual assault, there would have been more opportune times. This road was used as a cut-through by the locals, so a Sunday afternoon in broad daylight on a day and time when the road was at its busiest is not the best time to commit a sexual assault. This crime was more likely a reaction to an interaction that occurred that day on the road, just prior to the murders. 
rather than the offender's delayed act of retribution or some long-standing malice. There was nothing in either of the girls' histories to suggest they were at risk for this kind of attack. That was why the victimology was so important. Furthermore, there would be more opportune times for the offender to commit this crime. Most likely, the offender had an interaction with the girls that, by his perception, prompted an immediate action. Whatever happened, he was not going to let the girls leave and go back and tell their parents. Another observation is that the offender's interaction with the victim suggested that Taylor was his main focus. This was supported by the fact that his first violent act was directed at Taylor, and then he had additional interaction with her that was not necessary to commit the crime. For example, after shooting Skyla, he returned back to Taylor and shot her in the groin. He then manipulated her legs. This may suggest some sexual curiosity about her specifically on the part of the offender. In contrast, the offender's interaction with Skyla was practical and limited to shooting her for the purpose of preventing her escape and ensuring her death. At first blush, the violence at this crime scene may seem chaotic and out of control, but upon examination, the violence at the scene was controlled and deliberate. The initial shots were precise, and the offender methodically disabled the two victims. The offender first shot Taylor in the face, disabling her, and then shot Skyla until she was incapacitated. The offender then changed weapons and shot Taylor twice in the head and Skyla once in the neck, further demonstrating a rational and intentional attack. The final observation I had was the offender most likely utilized a vehicle. According to investigators, on a Sunday afternoon, a vehicle passes the area of the crime scene approximately every four to six minutes. On the afternoon of the murder, witnesses observed the victims walking on the side of the road. However, no one else was observed walking on the road. Therefore, in order to arrive at the scene, commit the murders, and leave without being observed, the offender most likely was in a vehicle. In addition, since the offender had multiple weapons, it is more likely that he transported them to the crime scene in a vehicle rather than on his person. That's it for this episode of The Consult. On the next episode, part two of the Walika murders, I will continue with discussion of the analysis and the unknown offender profile. This episode of The Consult was written and produced by me, Julia Cowley. The show was edited and mixed by Mike Aris, and the music was composed by John Hansky. If you'd like to learn more, please visit The Consult website at www.truecrimeconsult.com. That's www.truecrimeconsult.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the consult pod. Thank you for listening.